Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men, with a message entitled, The Decisions We Make. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 to 13, as we join Dr. John Newfound. I want to take you back to the year 1910. It was the age of the transatlantic steamer. Big, fast, beautiful ships crossing the Atlantic Ocean, going back and forth from North America to Europe. On board were average people, but also the stars of the day. Men like Andrew Carnegie, John Rockefeller, Henry Ford, and members of the Vanderbilt family. The dominant ship companies were Cunard and White Star, companies we've almost forgotten. If you had asked their leaders what business they were in, they would have responded, we're in the transatlantic shipping business. Now, I've heard more than one business analyst say that as logical as that sounds, that definition also sealed their demise. They were locked into a worldview in which they believed that the future was about bigger, faster ships. And so these companies were furiously innovating, trying to create ships with bigger engines and more funnels and iceberg-proof hulls. And that, of course, led to the building of the Titanic. And yet only a few years later, a disruptive technology would come along. It was called the airplane. And the airplane would sink, and please forgive the pun, but the airplane would sink the transatlantic shipping business. The white stars and cunards of this world would soon disappear, being rendered irrelevant. But more than one analyst has said that if White Star and Cunard had defined their own business differently, their future would have been different as well. What if they had not said we're in the transatlantic shipping business and instead had said we're in the transatlantic people-moving business? What would have happened then? Well, many experts think that they would have welcomed and indeed sought out new and better means of doing just that. They would have been on the airplane bandwagon before anyone else was and would have made an enormous profit rather than going out of business. Well, you know, that's all very interesting, especially if you're in a business with ever-changing technology and demands, but I have no intention of speaking about business. I want to ask a different, although a related question. What business is the church in? See, one of the answers that are immediately given is that we're in the business of evangelism and reaching people with the gospel. And if we're not reaching them, we need to change and adjust our theology, maybe our message. Otherwise, we're going to go out of business just like Cunard and White Star. At least that was the entire premise of liberal theology. Adjust to the culture in which you're in, or you will be entirely irrelevant to that culture in the future. Now, I suspect that when we talk that way, and I've heard people talk that way, and I don't think they mean that we are in the evangelism business at all. Evangelism, by biblical definition, is to do what 1 Peter 2.9 calls us to do, to call people out of darkness into his wonderful light. Conversion is a change of citizenship from this world and its values, which are passing away, into a kingdom that will never end. Instead, I think that some of us believe that evangelism is equivalent to church growth. Get a bigger church, that's what it's about. And when we think that way, I would say we're probably in the wrong business. I think before we talk about making an impact in our world and how to reach our world, we're well served to ask a prior question. What is the church? Exactly what business are we actually in? 
See, one of the greatest questions that we might ask ourselves is very simply this, who are we? Now, we've been studying 1 Corinthians 5, a most difficult passage. I mean, not difficult to understand, but difficult to do because it involves excommunication and and taking sexual sins with the utmost of seriousness. Whenever the church excommunicates someone, the danger is, at least so we think, that this is going to turn people off, especially in our sexually permissive society, to call people to a biblical definition of sexual faithfulness seems to some people to be narrow and even bigoted and hateful. See, if the wider culture finds out we will be viewed as wide-eyed, narrow-minded fundamentalists and even hate mongers. And when that happens, how are we going to reach people? See, I hope you see that the question is, what business are we in? Are we in the business of attracting more people to our institutions, or are we in the business of calling people out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ's kingdom? See, what business are we in? Are we cultural accommodators, or do we have a prophetic voice? Now, the Corinthian church had allowed a man who was involved in blatant sexual sin to remain in their church without warning him, without disciplining him, and without forcing the issue to a conclusion. And as time went on, the sin not only became more blatant and and more offensive, but the entire city of Corinth began to talk about what the Christians were actually doing. It turns out that what they were doing was being more permissive than even the sexually permissive Corinthian culture that they lived in. And in that came the question of identity. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Christ? What happens to a person after they have come to know the Lord? You know, if I were to become a Christian, at least so that people of Corinth might have asked themselves, what practical change could I expect in my life? I mean, all of that was up for grabs because the Corinthian church had failed to deal with incest. And so Paul intervenes. He demands they remove this person from the fellowship, excommunicate him, he says. That's the biblical command. But now he wants to explain why this matter is so important. So I'm reading 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, every church has to come to terms with her identity. Who are we? And the answer is that we're the family of God. And in the next chapter, Paul will have to remind the Corinthian believers of what they used to be before they had come to Christ. Now, we won't get ahead of ourselves and go there now, but what Paul wanted them to know is that as believers, they were the people who had met Jesus, who had come to understand that they were sinners, but that Christ had died for their sins and that they had been forgiven. And not only forgiven, but that Christ had given them a new life, that they had received the Holy Spirit who now lived in them. As Paul would have time to tell them when he would later write the church the next letter, and I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 5.17, there he writes, There if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and, and behold, the new has come. Now the Corinthians knew that, and in fact, had become somewhat arrogant of their standing before God. 
They were the chosen people of God, and with that came a sort of smugness and a sense of accomplishment and a disdain for others, even an arrogant disregard for what the rest of the people of Corinth thought of them. So Paul has to speak to them about that. Look again at the beginning of verse 6. It begins with the words, your boasting is not good. Now, this boasting repeats a phrase from earlier on in this text, back in verse 2, after chastising the Corinthians for allowing blatant, unrepentant sexual sin to go unchallenged in the congregation. He says, and you are arrogant or you're smug. You're proud of your church and of the way that you handle these matters. Now he repeats this theme, arrogant proud, boastful. He challenges them that the very first step that is required if a local church is to deal with unrepentant sexual sin is to hold people accountable that they need to, in doing this, develop an attitude of humility. Now, we have to remind ourselves what the Corinthians were boasting about. I mean, what were they so proud about? Remember their pride in their leaders? One would say, I follow Paul. I mean, they were boasting about the quality of their leadership. We also know that they were boasting about wisdom that they had attained. And and in chapter 8, Paul would write now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, he said. See, they were boasting about their freedom in Christ and the knowledge they had in exercising it. If we go forward to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, we read Paul writing, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. See, we do know that the Corinthians boasted that they had experienced more spiritual gifts than other churches and had, rather than being humbled by the kindness of God in this, Well, they saw reasons for arrogance. See, it's pretty clear to see that this group of believers were arrogant about their spirituality. It had never occurred to them that if they would allow sin to remain in their congregation without dealing with it, that would impact them all, and it would negatively affect their spirituality and their relationship to Christ. They were far too arrogant and sure of themselves to see it. It's the same for the church today. If the church will not deal with sin, that church will soon become comfortable with sin and soon be swimming in it themselves. Can I repeat what Dr. Neufeld has just said? Because I think we're discovering the heart of the issue. He said, if a church will not deal with sin, that church will become comfortable with sin. So how are we to stand out as being different? How ought the church respond? Well, we'll discover more in just a minute. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward, and begin the morning with devotions from in-doubt ministry leader Isaac Dagno. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. 
Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life. How can a local church deal with church discipline without destroying their fellowship? Paul believed that the very first step is that they must become genuinely humble, humble about their own spirituality, humble about the need to confess how vulnerable they all were to the very sins that they so easily condemned in others, humble enough to realize that they were not free to set their own course as as to how to run things in their church, but they needed to do things in the way that Christ had mandated that they should be done. So the first challenge of who we are is to accept the challenge of humility. And I might add, the Church of Jesus has been called to demonstrate the life of God in a world that knows so little of it. That means at the very least that we demonstrate that God's intention for our body is very different than what our culture believes. But here's a key. If we attain to that, if we learn to live as Christ intended us to live, Even that is no reason for arrogance. If there is a higher morality among believers than is found in the wider culture, this is not a matter of boasting. If there is more love among us than is found among others, again, we know that nothing of this kind began in us. We received it by grace. And so whatever had caused boasting in relation to the situation of sexual misdeeds and their tolerance of it, humility and never arrogance was called for. Second, After declaring the need for humility, Paul next challenges them to be pure. I'm reading the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, this is an amazing statement. Paul is giving a picture, even an analogy of the Jewish Passover. If you don't know what Passover is, let me explain it. Passover is a uniquely Jewish celebration. 3,500 years ago, God liberated Israel from slavery in Egypt by devastating their Egyptian masters through a series of ten plagues. After the first nine plagues, Egypt lay in ruins, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he refused to let Israel go free. So God had one last plague for Egypt. He told Israel that this plague was going to be so severe that the Egyptians would insist that Israel leave Egypt and that he would insist that they would no longer be slaves. And indeed, the people of Egypt would give Israel their own silver and gold and anything else they wanted before they went. God was about to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. Now, before that plague, two things were to be done. The first is that a lamb was to be sacrificed, and the blood of that lamb was to be smeared on the door frames of the house, so that when the angel of death descended on Egypt to kill the firstborn, he would see the blood of the lamb applied to each home that had it. And he would pass over that home, and the firstborn in that home would be spared. Secondly, the Israelites were to make bread, but they were to put no yeast into that bread. This was called the bread of haste. In other words, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, his deliverance would come so quickly, there would be no time to allow yeast to permeate the bread. But they would need strength for the journey, so they'd have to eat bread without yeast. It was the bread of haste, and it symbolized that when God saves, he does it instantly. But the bread of haste began to have an added meaning. The leaven came to represent the old life, the the life of Egypt, the life of slavery, and the life of bondage. 
So according to Exodus 13, verse 7, God gives direct instructions as to how Passover was to be celebrated. There it says, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And so it became a tradition for fathers in Jewish homes to initiate a search, taking the children with them, and they would look for leaven in the house to make sure that there was absolutely none left. All leaven had to be removed, and after that, leaven began to take on a symbolic meaning in Israel. It symbolized just how a little bit of sin could spoil a whole life, or a little bit of sin could spoil a whole community. You had to get rid of the leaven. Now, it's just this that Paul is referring to in verse 7. He is inviting the church to be just as vigilant as Jewish children were in looking for leaven when it came to demanding moral and sexual purity in the church. If we allow sin to remain in the community, that sin represents Egypt. It represents the life of bondage to sin. It represents what we were before Christ saved us. Now, please remember the issue. A man in Corinth was living in blatant sexual immorality, and this man refused to repent. Paul is stating that the refusal to excommunicate this man was in fact a decision on the part of the leaders of the church in Corinth to let that sin be the yeast of the old life, the the yeast of slavery to sexual sin, a yeast that dominated the culture of Corinth And that would allow it to transform the nature of the church of Jesus Christ. If that happened, the church would lose her unique identity as the people of God. So you see, that's the challenge of the church of Jesus Christ in every age. It's a challenge as to whether we will be courageous enough to confront our own sin. It's the challenge as to whether or not we will demand accountability of each other. Once we become Christians and belong to a Christian community, we will demand purity of ourselves. That's the challenge, the challenge of humility, and then also the challenge of purity. And then third, the challenge to transform or to live a transformed life. Let's read again the last half of verse 7 and then the beginning of verse 8. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival. Now, that brief section would be easy to ignore, but if we spend a bit of time with it, I hope you're going to see how important those two phrases actually are. The first sentence is in what is called the indicative mood. When something is in the indicative, it states what is true. It requires us to understand and to believe. Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed. That's indicative. All Christians celebrate a spiritual Passover. We were in slavery, not in Egypt under the dominion of Pharaoh, but in the kingdoms of this world under the dominion of Satan himself. We were enslaved to sexual passions, enslaved to our own self-will, enslaved to anger and lust and bitterness, quarreling, idolatry, fits of anger and rivalries. The list just goes on and on. And this enslavement was killing us. But when Christ, our Passover lamb, was slain, the angel of death passed over us. The wrath of God passed over us, and we were set free, free from lust and free from anger and free from bitterness. That's the indicative statement. That's what Christ has done. It's outstanding. Someone should just shout hallelujah. Now look at verse 8. This is now in the imperative. Given what Christ has done, this is what we should do. 
we should celebrate the feast. The Greek language has this in an ongoing sense. We should keep on celebrating the feast, the feast of our deliverance. In other words, the way in which you live is a celebration of deliverance. So humility, purity, transformation as a part of our life. And then finally, the call to consistency. Look at verse 8. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, there's a contrast in this section. Notice what the old leaven is. It is called malice, and it's called evil. It's interesting that Paul should give us these two words. The first word, malice, speaks of what's internal. It speaks of hateful feelings from within. The other word, evil, externalizes and shows us evil disposition. That's the old leaven, evil thoughts and and evil actions. And on the other hand, Paul gives us two wonderful words, sincerity and truth. I know the Greek word for sincerity means freedom from mixture. Purity means no mixed ingredients, no mixing of old values of this dying culture that we once lived in with the new life of Christ, rather to live the new life of the kingdom. See, I began by asking the question of what business we're in. And everything depends on our answer. If we think our business is to try to fit into the cultures of this world in order to attract them, we will fail to understand. See, we're not in that business at all. Rather, we are in the business of being the people of God, redeemed from slavery to the world of flesh and the devil, and delivered into the kingdom of our God. That's our business. That's why Paul adds the word truth. You see, truth never changes according to the popularity of the present time or the culture in which we live. Our identity now is truly that Christ has captured our hearts and we live in his kingdom of light. John, yesterday and today, wow, a lot of things to think about. Can I ask you this question, though, and it's a tough one. Has the church lost or are we losing our unique identity as the people of God? Yeah, I think, Ben, every one of us seems to know that that's exactly what's going on. And when that's happening and when we cease being a church as we were intended to be, we're letting our culture down because the culture needs to look somewhere for hope. I mean, the culture is broken in every sense. And I don't know that we need to condemn the culture. What we need to do is provide an alternative. And when the church stops being the church and the holy people of God, exemplifying what the life of Christ actually looks like in a corporate environment, when that doesn't happen, the culture has nowhere to look and it sees no hope for the peril that it's in. So that's the challenge we must embrace. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow at Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I have a question about what the Bible has to say about gender. Isn't the most important thing that we just love each other? How can a loving God send people to hell? Jesus can't be the only way to heaven, can he? These are a few of the questions being asked by people every day as they search for some truth, some right or wrong, some understanding of the meaning of life. Dr. Neufeld has just completed a new Bible teaching series called I've Got Questions, and these are among some of the critical questions of life and faith that are addressed. 
This month, we want to offer this important Bible teaching series on CD called I've Got Questions to Anyone Who Would Ask for free. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 